You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Stevings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello, everybody, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. It's uh, Nev here, and uh, just for a change, we're uh, giving Carlos uh, a day off because he's been a very busy chap, hasn't he, Matt? And, I know, uh, yes, absolutely. So yes. We, we've, uh, <laughs> we've, locked him, we've locked the overlord out of the studio, uh, and yes. uh, he's currently in Bury St. Edmunds on some kind, of, uh, some kind of business, but we're not allowed to know. I'm sure he'll be uh, listening and, and texting and criticising yeah. that's, that's... Um, from afar. Um, <laughs> that's that's what I'm scared okay. about, actually. We'll, let's be honest. We'll, we'll talk to him about that later on. Yes, indeed. He, he's a, he's a, he, unfortunately, he gets 4G data pretty much anywhere he goes, so I wouldn't mm. be at all surprised if he's could, dipping could in in the car on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, welcome, everybody. It's episode 208. And, of course, uh, we usually try and have a special guest. We've got a really special guest this week at very short notice, and I'm sure his fee will be reflected yeah, uh, in this as well. Um, <laughs> Very great pleasure to introduce from the airline pilot, like pilot guy, <laughs> and that's that's easy for you to say. Have you had a glass of wine, Nev? By any chance? No, I, I wish I had. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Captain Jeff. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm glad that you invited me to be part of your awesome show. <laughs> You're very welcome, sir. Very welcome indeed. And there's been lots going on in the background, um, particularly studio construction. Mm. Uh, over in the barn studio, bit of an update from you, Matt, on how it's all going there. Yeah, it's, uh, we were sort of more or less uh, the sort of the actual what I call the outer construction of of said uh, studio is now complete. Uh, so we're at the sort of painting stage, really. So we're going to be uh, painting the outside just so that it's sort of white because there is a, a sort of a room the other side of it just so it doesn't get absorbed by all you know all the light disappears because of that. But uh, no, the inside is delightfully dark, uh, which I'm looking forward to because I'm struggling like mad in here with the light coming into the barn, frankly, and I've had. I've had my lights go here as well above, so I've got, I've got apologies if I look a bit dark this week. But uh, yeah, no, very exciting. And uh, you're coming over on Friday, aren't you, sir? We're going to yes, have I'm, a... yeah, I'm coming over with some gear and some bits and pieces, and very importantly too, we have been given a gift. Uh, from Captain Jeff, mm, and uh, we're going to be using that in the studio, and it is a huge on-air <laughs> light. And in fact, I've now wired mine up yes, at indeed. home here, yeah. and it looks like some sort of, um, well, somewhere you might find in the streets of Amsterdam, frankly speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wow! I thought of you guys. But yet it is very effective. Let me tell you. And, uh, Absolutely, so we're very grateful indeed, Jeff. Thank you indeed, very much. Very much. Mrs. Uh, Nev is very I just aware. To, you know, <laughs> contribute a little bit to your fantastic new studio <laughs> and the Nevtech studio as well. Well, oh, you know, thank, thank you. you. Yes, absolutely. And the, the, the great, the great thing is, is Nev will always know, even from a different county, when you're broadcasting now, which is which is fantastic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true, isn't it? But so very nice of you, Jeff. Thank, thanks ever so much. Yeah, indeed. absolutely. Looking forward to getting but, into it. So we've got quite a few uh, people in the chat room, as usual. Thank you very much indeed for coming into that. And uh, let's get underway with some of the stories. There's plenty of in the news this week. So uh, if you're ready, Matt. I certainly am, yep. And you're ready, Captain Jeff? I am ready. Great. Off we go.
Well, kicking off the first story this week, it's from the chaviation.com website, and it, the headline is Virgin Atlantic hopes to seal AF and KLM deal, that's Air France and KLM deal by early 2019. And it says that Virgin Atlantic hopes to finalise a deal with Air France KLM, which would see the Franco-Dutch group acquire a 31% stake in the British carrier by early 2019. Slightly behind the original schedule, the CEO has reported as, uh, as saying by Reuters. Uh, the transaction was initially planned to conclude in 2018. However, obtaining the necessary permission from the US antitrust authorities may take longer but should be secured within a year from now the ceo said uh, air france klm will acquire the stake from sir richard branson's virgin group and following the transaction the group's holding in the carrier will decrease to 20 percent leaving delta airlines as the largest single shareholder with a 49 percent stake in virgin atlantic one of the things i've never understood about aviation is who owns whom I, i'm just <laughs> I, I just can't keep up with it really and there's i think with the the amount of money that's involved in aviation i think it, it, these sort of acquisitions and, and large stake shareholdings are inevitable really there's, there's very few uh, independent airlines left i think i think certainly nowadays of course this is the sort this is the sort of model that, that richard branson tends to do doesn't isn't it you know he will he will sort of start a, a brand if you like always with a view to passing it on to to someone else i mean i i'm sort of old enough to remember here in the uk used to have uh, virgin radio as a radio station and they sold it to i think it ended up being bauer that bought it uh, in the end and it became you know it, they rebranded it and changed it once it had been made successful and he, i mean he does that with all of his um businesses doesn't he he sort of essentially sells them off it's it's unusual for them to keep the name though yes interesting isn't it and i think we're, well we're going to see some more um more things happening with uh acquisitions and also it all, all depends on the economic climate and, and what part of the world you're in as well i guess and yeah. uh, i guess jeff uh, over the years you, you've seen many acquisitions and, and mergers are you surprised by uh, by what virgin are doing here no not at all. Um, it's just, uh, as you said, it's kind of hard to figure out who owns whom anymore. And it seems like it's all just one big giant family. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As long as they continue to try and undercut each other, I suppose that's uh, always got to be a good sign, hasn't it? We're... Well, that's what it looks like in public. But, you know, behind the scenes, they're they're all, you know, making it all work. <laughs> <laughs> they're all making agreements privately amongst themselves it's uh, <laughs> i didn't say that no 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 no, no. <laughs> perish the thought over this don't want to be controversial obviously uh, <laughs> it's uh yeah well it's a good luck to him i suppose really uh, yes. on to story so, number uh, two so uh, the second story is of course it's a ryanair story which means it's especially for matt yeah thanks for that yes as is, as is, i thought it might get week off seeing as carlos wasn't here but there we are never mind oh, it, yeah. it is uh, it is on the the Independent, uh, and it's the Irish Independent actually that this story is from, and the headline is Ryanair to employ German pilots directly in major shift. All contract Ryanair pilots in Germany are to be offered full employment status with the airline in the coming weeks. UK firm McGinley Aviation, which uh, provides contract pilots to the carrier, has written to pilots to notify them that the firm will cease the provision of contractors in Germany from October the 31st. Having discussed the matter with the client airline, 
when uh, you are provided to Ryanair. Ryanair has confirmed that they will be offering a direct Ryanair employment contract to you in coming weeks. Uh, McGinley Aviation uh, Managing Director Elizabeth Kuzak said in the letter, It is important that you liaise with your accountancy providers to ensure that outstanding limited company tax social insurance matters are dealt with appropriately. About half of Ryanair's pilots in Germany are contractors. Uh, German tax authorities had previously raided Ryanair contract pilots' homes and some of the airline's bases as part of investigations into McGinley Aviation and another contract pilot firm UK-based Brookfield. Uh, tax authorities have been investigating if there was evasion of income taxes and social welfare, welfare contributions. Uh, meanwhile, the Portuguese Ryanair Company Council formed under the um, on the, under the auspices of trade union SPAC has claimed that it uh, that in a letter to the airline's chief people officer, Eddie Wilson, that it is breaching por Portuguese labour laws in certain clauses. Uh, the council has uh, insisted the carrier pay pilots in the country backdated pay and interest for the national holidays uh, they have worked. It claims that under the Portuguese law, workers are entitled to 13 paid public holidays compared to nine in Ireland. Uh, SPAC now calls on Ryanair to pay our members the applicable daily holiday pay per year since being based in Portugal plus interest in the next monthly pay. Then uni the, the, the union told Mr Wilson. A Ryanair spokeswoman said that a majority of our pilots are directly employed and Ryanair complies with all Irish and EU employment law. Ryanair said yesterday that it is launching its first ever flights to Turkey this summer with routes to Dalaman from Dublin and Bratislava. Is it Bratislava? Bratislava. Bratislava. I'm really rubbish yes. with my European names, aren't I? Never mind. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Is, is this a common thing, then, that, that pilots are sort of what I call um, self-employed rather than working uh, well, for the Well, it depends on what part of the world and what airline. I was going to ask Jeff, actually. Is this, this something you see in the US very much? People having to set up their own companies or are they on the, the full-time payroll of their employer? I am not aware of any major or even regional uh, carrier that has this kind of a scheme as far as, you know, being individual contractors. Now, I know that there are people, commercial pilots out there that do uh, are kind of free agents and they do uh, fly under private contract or individual contract. But uh, that's not in the airline world. That's in the uh, Part 135 world, as far as I know. So, yeah, it's. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's. Um, I mean, I know. I know. For example, here in the UK, and I, I can only use this as an example because I don't. I'm the first to admit I don't know the first about aviation, but I know it's very much a big no-no uh, in regard uh, to coach drivers. As a coach driver in the UK, you can't be self-employed, um, like uh, be self-employed and then work with another coach company, if you see what I mean, because uh, somebody has to ultimately be responsible for all your hours, and it's usually the the company that you work for. So it's. Uh, I, I sort of kind of assume that the similar similar rules, if you like, would apply to the aviation world. Mm, yes, and I think uh, in the case of Ryanair, of course, a lot of pilots are uh, self-employed, effectively, mm. with, their, with their own uh, company and their own uh, financial arrangements there as well. And, of course, I'm sure that both the UK and the Irish tax authorities are extremely interested in all of that. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a can of worms going on there and <laughs> to do with you know, union-related stuff as well. So uh, we've not heard the last of this story. I, I, think. I fear you may be right, sir, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Jeff, you are taking the next story, sir. 
Is this the Primera Air? Yeah, that's the one. All right. Uh, Primera Air. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Uh, the low-cost Nordic airline, uh, I've never heard of them actually, is launching its brand new North American routes. I guess I'll hear of them now. <laughs> with an incredible introductory offer of £99 one-way airfares available wow. for a limited time only. Primera Air will be the first airline in 10 years to operate scheduled transatlantic flights from London Stansted Airport, bringing new North America links to the area. Taking the strain of searching tirelessly for affordable international travel options, Primera Air's mission is to make expensive long-haul travel history. There are five levels of travel package available to book. Light, Comfort, Flex, Premium, and Premium Flex, which gives passengers the opportunity to tailor their onboard experience to suit their budget and needs. Luckily, lucky travelers will be able to book the 99 fares to either New York, Boston, Toronto, or Washington, D.C. from the 22nd of March, 2018, as the airline's super low fares go live at 9 a.m. There are 99 tickets for 99 pounds available on each of the four North American routes, 396 tickets total. And they're expected to sell out within minutes. So those chasing the American dream, that's not the American dream, are encouraged to be at the ready for the Thursday morning sale. Although the Nordic airline is already well, well established, having successfully operated in Northern Europe for the last 14 years, the North American routes will be the first time Primera Air has graced British soil. The 99 one-way fares are available on the light travel package, which includes a board on which to sit and water. <laughs> No, wait a minute. Uh, which includes a seat. Oh, good. It includes a seat and 10 kilogram hand luggage, which I think is about 22 pounds. Yeah. Uh, the 99 pound fares will be sold on a first come, first served basis and are valid for travel between April 19th and December 9th, 2018. I mean, the alarm bell that's ringing in my head here as, as we're reading this this story is like it's great. So there is what was it, um, ninety nine seats or something that was available? Uh, uh, yeah, ninety nine tickets available for ninety nine pounds. So however much are the other ones going to be? Uh, in order to sort of, because presumably the other ones are going to be supplementing these these cheaper flights, aren't they? But uh, it's uh, if they don't price them too stupidly. I mean, uh, from my point of view here, because obviously Stansted is our local airport, um, and the the opportunity to be able to go um, to you know across the transatlantic, you know, to go uh, over to the states actually from Stansted is incredibly appealing because um, we can't do as long as you don't take any clothing or any other. <laughs> You know, items with you. <laughs> yes, and don't expect any kind of frills or comfort. I think is is the other issue. But uh, yeah, it'd just be interesting to see what they what they are for for like if you don't get them in the in the cheap sale, if you like. Because uh, I mean, seriously, uh, and and, and uh, uh, more will be alluded to this uh, next week. All being well, uh, but uh, my boss has just come back from Las Vegas, having gone with British Airways, and they were so horrifically disappointed with how it went essentially and oh. the treatment that they received um that um yeah I mean, it's like literally well if, it, if, we, if we're going to get rubbish service we may as well pay very little money for it do you know what i mean it's uh, it's always been the thing isn't it and it started with freddie laker and uh, with his SkyTrain uh, operation with the dc-10s we've been trying to get um inexpensive inexpensive flights to north america from the uk for 
um, many years now, yeah. and there's been a few operators that have tried it, um, and it, with limited success. Yeah. And again, it all depends on the economic um, period that we're going through. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the ninety-nine pound uh, flight um, is probably never quite achievable somehow. But um, no. nonetheless, they will have to uh, have a lot of um, tickets sold. On with those other fares to, to make it viable because uh, they will not be making any money on those routes. But also, for well, and I, I hate to uh, inform you, but uh, that 99 pound fare is just the beginning because if you want to eat anything on the flight, I'm looking at the uh, website for the okay. added fees for various things. So if you want food, even a basic sandwich, you're going to pay 16 pounds, I believe. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> if you uh, every you have a transaction fee of 10 pounds. If you want to pick your seat, then you pay another 30 pounds. Okay. Um, and it goes on and on. Of course, if you want to have a uh, a, a regular sized piece of luggage, yeah, that's going to be another I think uh, 35 pounds. Uh, so you know, it's not quite mm. as it seems with the 99 pounds, but I guess it's a start. Oh, yes, yeah. the, the, the small print, isn't there? Well, it is, yeah. yeah. But as, again, from, from my point of view, though, the very fact that uh, regardless of the cost almost, the very fact that there are flights available from Stansted to go to oh, yeah. uh, America is actually very, very appealing in its own. So as long as they don't, you know, as long as they don't make themselves much more expensive than, say, taking a flight from uh, Heathrow or, or uh, Gatwick, then um, I, I could see I could see people being very interested because it is a very easy airport to get to from from loads of, you know, from from loads of areas around. So it's uh, mm. it's very exciting. Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, on to the next story then, and this is in the uh, express.co.uk, another excellent aviation news <laughs> channel that we all yes. subscribe to. Not. It says, flight warning, uh -oh. big uppercase. <laughs> EU may use mystery rules to ban BA and EasyJet in Brexit punishment. Right. Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary has warned that British-owned airlines will be banned from flights between European countries after Brexit as giant companies like Lufthansa and Air France seize the opportunity to punish their UK rivals. The EU will prohibit EasyJet and British Airways from flying between European destinations, according to a shock warning from Ryanair chief Michael O'Leary. The budget airline CEO said Brexit will trigger a mass flight grounding to and from Britain. European airlines saw Brexit as an opportunity to punish their British rivals and will push for a severe disruption to UK tourists, he claimed. The outspoken CEO who was speaking in Brussels told Politico's EU Confidential, if there is a hard Brexit next March, there is a real risk of disruption to flights in and out of the UK. We have these arcane rules that EU airlines must be majority owned by EU citizens. When the UK leaves, British citizens will no longer be EU citizens. So there is a risk that British Airways ownership of Iberia and Aer Lingus will be broken up. EasyJet flights between Spain and Italy, between Spain and Portugal, that, uh, that will stop since it is uh, a UK airline. Uh, that is uh, the much trickier challenge. Whilst I'd like to see my competitors grounded, I don't think it'll be good for our industry or our sector. Uh, they will not be allowed to fly. Lufthansa and Air France see an opportunity here to push the rules very hard, very tough. It's in their interests. He again urged the British to change their minds on Brexit. 
Mr O'Leary cited the Irish who twice voted down the EU in referenda but later changed their minds. The CEO joked, keep voting until you get the right answer. The remarks from the Ryanair chief will shock British tourists as Brexit is set to take place next March, just before the Easter holidays. Lufthansa's CEO has previously commented that teaching the UK a lesson over Brexit might be a good thing. Now, uh, let's not get into this here, <laughs> because we'll be here all, all the rest of the day. Uh -huh. um, but I, regardless of one's view on whether we, whether should, we be should be in or, out, or yeah. not, yeah. Um, I don't think there's going to be any disruption whatsoever. I think they, they will work out a plan uh, between uh, all the European airlines about how they're going to do it. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of talks going on with the CAA in, in the background that we're just not privy to and that the press certainly aren't privy to. And I'm not saying it's going to be completely smooth, uh, maybe some disruption, uh, but I really can't see this uh, sort of situation going on where flights are going to be grounded in, in, in the way that they're uh, talking about. What, well, what do you think? Of course they're not. I mean, this is just ridiculous. I, I just... I, I, and and it, it is a problem, I'm afraid, with these these sort of you know trashy newspapers, for want of a better word, because I wouldn't certainly wouldn't put the Daily Express as a quality uh, read uh, personally. Um, but it's just oh, it just really annoys me that, that it's just as you say, regardless of what your your personal opinion is and what fence you sit on, etc. I. I oh. It's just like uh, uh, I mean I suppose you you have some some similar things going on in the in the states there to be fair Jeff but it's just I am so fed up at this whole Brexit thing already it's just oh. <laughs> yeah I isn't this the same guy Mr O'Leary that just uh, about a month ago uh, said similar things like this and then a couple of weeks after that he Changed said well I don't think it's going to be bad and everything is going to be fine and now he's switched back to the I think he's just trying to stir the pot here I don't I don't think he even believes what he's saying here no, in this article no. uh, do you do you think there's a slim possibility here that is any opportunity for a bit of publicity might uh, of course be uh, a serious risk <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. I think this is the problem, isn't it? That there's yeah. there's so much information that people want to lob into the argument. Some with justification and some without. Yeah. And until we get to where we need to be, we don't really know what all this is is going to mean. So, uh, but uh, yeah, this is not a Brexit podcast. I'm pleased to say. No, indeed. So, um, and and, and the papers will go into much detail about it. Really. And of course, the papers will continue to surmise and and digest on our behalf until probably mm. long after the event has actually taken place. But uh, yes, it's, yes. Uh, it's a funny one, isn't it? I, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. And I agree with uh, Tony S. in the chat room saying it's just ridiculous scaremongering. And uh, yeah. I think we all agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's it. It's just it's looking for headlines, isn't it? That, that's that's the long and the short of it. Yep. Uh, so, uh, next story is for you, Matt. Yeah, um, okay. So, this is on the Flight Global website, and the headline is Boeing launches 737 MAX 7 into flight testing. Uh, Boeing will be the flight certification campaign uh, for, oh, sorry, they will begin, sorry, the flight certification campaign for the 138 seat, seat 737 MAX 7 after the third and smallest variant. Uh, of the re-engined single R family completed a more than three hour long maiden flight on the 16th of March. The first flight of the CFM International Leap 1B powered aircraft followed 
a familiar pattern. Uh, test pilots approached 250 knots and 25,000 feet in a broad loop to Boeing's flight test center at Moses Lake in Washington State's interior where the aircraft performed a low approach, says Boeing 737 chief pilot Jim Webb. The aircraft performed a low approach at Moses Lake Airport, systems checks and an engine restart during the flights. He said, wow, that sounds quite scary. Is that a normal thing? restarting engines during flight or is it just part of the yeah, testing when you're doing process test, when you're doing test flights yes right mm -hmm. okay that's good uh, so we completed the entire test profile web says the first flight of the 737-7 comes 10 months after the after the entry into service of the 737 max 8 and less than a week before the first delivery of the 737 max 9 Boeing expects to deliver the first 737-7 in 2019 with the 737 MAX 200 and the 737 MAX 10 to follow within two years. The 737-7's impact on the market so far has been far less than the 737-700 that replaces that it replaces. The, the 126-seat aircraft entered service with Southwest Airlines in 1998, the first of... Uh, 1,126 737-700s delivered to date. Boeing wasn't uh, uh, Boeing doesn't break out orders of the 737 MAX family by variant, with one exception. The 737-10 is listed publicly with a backlog of 416 orders, but no such total exists for the other variants. I wonder why that is. Perhaps <laughs> Anyway, uh, the uh, commercial interest in the 737-7 is visible only by the number of customers. Uh, the type has been ordered by Southwest, WestJet, uh, Ruli Jetlines, uh, Air Lease Corp, and one unidentified airline. Boeing says two Boeing business jet versions of the aircraft have also been sold. So it's uh, yes. amazing, actually. And uh, I was, what do you think about this, Jeff? I was just looking at the the history of the Boeing seven three seven. The amount of um, usage that they have got out of this airframe, considering it was originally. Um, thought about or, or designed in 1964 and it says that the initial 737-100 made its first flight in April 1967 wow. and then entered airline service in February 1968 with Lufthansa. That's an incredible record, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is. Um, and it's, you know, of course, the, the airlines that they're building today, uh, the 737 variants are quite different from the original, you know, 100 and 200 series for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the basic fundamentals of the design are, are relatively unchanged. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the 737 700, um, we have a few at Acme and, uh, they're, you, you know, because they're, not a lot of seats available on that particular uh, airplane, and we tend to use it for uh, segments that are uh, or airports that are uh, difficult to get into, such as uh, Key West. We have a flight from Atlanta to Key West. Key West has a very short runway. Right. Uh, it's like 5,000 feet long, and uh, so only the 737-700, as far as I know, at ACME is allowed to, uh, or op at least the way we operate. Uh, to operate to go in into there the airline for yeah. us. Mm. Yes, yeah, so um, um, floating it down the runway for a smooth landing. So, right? so excuse, nope. excuse, <laughs> so excuse my slight naivety here, because obviously, uh, you know, I mean, the the plane that that certainly here in the UK most people are familiar with is the seven three seven dash. Is it the eight? Is the eight hundred the one that eight hundred um, that Ryanair is uses? The, uh, and uh, so. so, how how does that compare, uh, say, to to the seven three seven, say? 
dash seven or, or seven hundred is what do they mean by the variance? Is it a different configuration or so I mean Yeah, it's much shorter. If you look at one side by side, Matt, um the seven thirty seven is much shorter. Right. Uh, and uh the using the it looks like pretty much the same wing on the the other variants. It's just that uh, it it gives you less capacity, perhaps more range, I'm guessing. Nice. I don't know a lot about the uh, airplane, but uh, performance-wise, uh, you're able to operate it into, uh, you know, shorter fields. Wow. Very cool. It's, mm. uh, yeah, it's just, mm, <laughs> I, aviation still confuses me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I think it's overrated, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I it is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's all up in the air. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, so the... Um... Uh, was that uh, your story? That was uh, indeed, yes. So uh, it's story the next one, isn't it? It's My is. turn. All right. Uh, world's biggest jet engine takes to the sky for the first time in uh, themirror.co.uk. <laughs> Boeing has successfully tested the world's biggest jet engine after a modified 747 took off from Victorville in California today. The giant, gigantic megaplane was loaded with the General Electric-made GE9X engine, which is expected to be used for commercial flights from 2020. The GE9X was loaded alongside smaller engines so that engineers could test it out without risking the passengers or the crew on board the plane. It's a big success for General Electric after the U.S. company was forced to delay testing the prototype of the engine last year. Did you want to run the uh, video? Yeah. No, oh, you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just noticed you were already doing that. <laughs> so, uh, so if you're watching the video, you'll see this 747 taking off from Victorville, California, with the uh, the very large GE9X engine in the number two position, the uh, left inboard oh, I position. See, yeah. And it's huge. It is a <laughs> it lot is bigger than yeah. the others, isn't it? It's uh... the uh, it looks really odd, doesn't it? Uh, on that so uh, airplane. How, how do they, they test these engines, Jeff, in, in this sort of configuration? Do they end up putting a, a lot of rudder in to compensate for that extra thrust? You know, I don't know. I've never talked to anybody that has done this kind of testing. I've never read about exactly how that all works. And I'm thinking that they must have some kind of engineering performance parameters that they have to uh, abide by for takeoffs, at least, because I'm sure that that GE9X puts out considerably more thrust than the uh, engine adjacent to it on that yeah. wing and then the other two on the other wing. So they probably have to take off with a very reduced power setting with that mm. thing, I would imagine. Or maybe even the it's gonna outboard. Be turning, it's going to be turning right a lot, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I have to be honest. Also, one of the things that you notice there is, so I'm just running the video again for those of you who are watching on, on, on YouTube, but you look, I mean, landing must be a bit tricky there because the clearance between that massive engine and the runway, it, lo I mean, it looks maybe deceiving, but it really doesn't look very far away from the ground. <laughs> no, it looks very, very close to the runway. Um, yeah. Apparently they're using in it to clear off all the coyotes and right, yes, other wildlife in Victorville. <laughs> um, because yeah. uh, if something was anywhere near that runway, it's going to get sucked up by that engine. It's just uh, huge and it's very close, Matt, to the runway for sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, as you say, it's a bit of a brown trousers uh, experience, I think, probably as far <laughs> as that is concerned. It's just like, ooh. Uh, I just had a WhatsApp from Carlos, everyone. He's watching in, in the car on the way home. Oh, uh, <laughs> you can't, can't just leave it. No. We're, we're managing fine. We're managing fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. Just think about Don't those... worry, we're not taking over. No, no, no. no. Not, not yet. <laughs> um, but uh, just think about those large engines, Jeff. On the A380, uh, when it comes to reverse thrust, there's only the uh, inboard engines have reverse thrust fitted and not the outboard engines. Um, Presumably, because it would uh, knock out all the ru the runway lights, the the wingspan so great. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder what the uh, the situation is with this engine. I didn't actually read anything about the uh, what the reverse um, capability is. Not or, sure. Or, or whether they only have it on inboards, perhaps. You mean on the uh, on the test bed aircraft? Mm, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Now you know. Of course, this engine is primarily designed to be fitted on the uh, seven or triple seven ten. Uh, I guess that's the correct, uh, or Dash 10, is that what they're calling that? The uh, latest so, yeah. stretched yeah. version uh, with the, it's a, an amazing airplane because it's going to actually have the wings, uh, I forgot how, I think about the last 15 feet of the wings on either side are going to actually fold upward Oh wow! so that it can continue to be used in present day uh, jet or parking spots with the jetways and everything else, uh, wingtip clearances and such. And uh, it's it's quite amazing if you if you do a search on YouTube or whatever to see the uh, folding wings on the the new triple seven. It's pretty pretty amazing. Um, so this is the engine that has is designed specifically to power that airplane. And so there will only be one on each side. So I'm not sure that the reverse thrust consideration is a problem in that case. That's a good point, isn't it? Yes, very true. It is, very it's, true. It's a it's a it's a it's a huge engine, though. That's that's just. It is. Well, you know the d diameter of that the, the cowling um, from the largest diameter of the uh, cowling is about fourteen to fifteen feet in diameter, and wow. that's actually as large or actually a little bit larger than the ac the fuselage on the seven thirty seven. So uh, looks are deceiving there. So if you can imagine a 737 taking off right under the left wing of yeah. that uh, GE propulsional, propulsional, excuse me, propulsion <laughs> platform, that 747 we're seeing in the in the video, uh, the 737 fuselage would be the same size as that engine that's mounted on the wings. Pretty impressive. It is. Yeah. It is absolutely. And uh, well, absolutely. and, and uh, one doth swan's cap to the uh, the pilots who were trying to fly this thing with a with a with a wrong sized engine somewhere mounted. It's. Uh, is it, I, I mean, is it one of those where they probably? I mean, I don't know. Perhaps they perhaps they kill the other engines around it once they're in the air just to sort of see, you know, how it's performing and things. Perhaps I don't know. I would imagine that that uh, number one engine, the furthest you know outboard engine on the left side, yeah. is probably for most of the flight being operated at idle power yeah. i would imagine or maybe even completely shut off i don't yeah. know again i'd be curious to find out myself yeah, absolutely. yeah. who do that. who do we who do we contact to ask such questions Ned, we'll leave I that to know. you yeah I'm, I'm sure we can find somebody in the world of uh, aviation testing that can help absolutely. us with some of well if, I, if our chat room knows anyone who can help or answer that question Stay then tuned. do please get in touch yes yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Well, the next story is on uh, bizjournals.com, and it says that uh, Airbus is once again using General Mitchell International Airport as a cold weather testing site for one of its planes. This week's plane is the gigantic A330 900 Neo. The massive commercial plane uh, measures 209 feet long, 55 feet, feet 55 feet feet high and boasts a wingspan of 210 feet 
A typical flight of the plane would seat 287 passengers, but the plane could carry up to 400 people at one time. Other impressive features of the jet include a 165-foot-long cabin with a maximum width of 17 feet and a range of 6,550 nautical miles, which Airbus claims is a 400-mile upgrade on previous models. The plane is also more fuel-efficient fuel with its sharklet wingtip devices that make it more aerodynamic. General Mitchell spokesman Harold Mester said that Airbus had been working with the airport for most, if not all, of its cold weather testing since 2009 when it tested its uh, A380 double-decker plane. Ever since that time, any time they've had to do testing in North America, they tend to choose Mitchell Airport in Milwaukee, Mester said. This is the latest of a series of testing that they've done here. Mester said that the relationship between the airport and Airbus is a comfortable one and that Milwaukee Airfield is conducive to parking and testing of planes. They don't want to be a burden on operations or interfere with airlines coming in and out, Mester said. We have enough capacity to handle it easily, so they felt comfortable bringing in a number of different kinds of planes so this is another story where they're testing at uh, one end of the the temperature spectrum obviously and there's obviously another end of the spectrum which is hot and high airfields yeah. i would imagine but what sort of special operations are required for, for very cold ops uh, jeff would you think i don't know uh, i do i can attest to the fact that uh, milwaukee wisconsin does get a little chilly in the winter time that's for sure uh, it's right on uh, for those of you not familiar with the geography in the u.s uh, if you know where chicago is on the southern end uh, southern end of uh, lake michigan if you just go up the lake michigan coast uh, from chicago you'll uh, run into milwaukee pretty quickly so it's in that area of the uh, i guess you call that the upper midwest and uh, it gets quite cold, especially being very close to the uh, Great Lake. I bet, yeah. I bet, yeah. And of course, you, you, uh, not to be sneezed at, is the impact uh, that you find, obviously, at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, sort of Dubai and things like that. There's often been problems with sort of uh, taking taking off and things like that at, at those airports because of the sheer extreme heat and, and sand and, and all that kind of thing. It's uh, Sand and engines don't mix, really, do they? <laughs> not really, not so great no not so well uh and another thing about milwaukee as i mentioned here in this article is that uh it it's a you know has considerably long runways i mean not super long but uh you know uh, long enough to test this uh 330 900 neo uh but it's also not as busy as some of the airports nearby like chicago and such so they can they can get in and out and not really disrupt any of the uh regular Part 121 traffic, airline traffic. So it's a good place often, to go. Am I right in thinking, Jeff, that um, in the colder the weather, the uh, the better, uh, the more the more efficient operation of the jet engine is? Yes, engines, jet engines love very, very cold and very, very dry uh, air. Yes, I would think. That's very true. And I think I can even detect a slight improvement in my own car uh, when it's very cold outside to, compared to 
compared to when it's quite warm as well. Uh, to so, be uh, fair, I mean the banana does in fact uh, resemble some kind of jet engine. Certainly the way, uh, certainly the way I've seen it go past me in the past. But we'll, we'll gloss over that and move on. Well, we? I, I try <laughs> to keep it within the speed limit. Yes, so, of course, uh, absolutely. Okay. Indeed. <laughs> and next time I ride with Nev, I'm going to make sure I have a helmet. Good uh, idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes feel like, you feel like you're on the Top Gear test track, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love Nev's car. It's great. It is. Oh, thank you. Very it nice. is absolutely. Yeah. Nice. In stark contrast, I have to say, we myself have never been doing some filming during the week. Uh, down in uh, down sort of in uh, sort of Chester sort of area and uh, Nev chose a much better park place to park his car than mine it has to be said because uh, I think mine had been used by the birds overnight uh, for what I can only describe as target practice I've never seen anything like it in my entire life <laughs> I don't know. There, there's a special breed of bird in uh, in Chester definitely yeah it's uh, strange wasn't it yes it, it was very splattered wasn't it it was indeed yes that's what she said yeah. uh, anyway so moving on the uh, <laughs> the, the uh, next story is on the uh, National Public Radio website and the headline is facial scanning now arriving at US airports because obviously it's been very successful here in the UK not uh, the, the use of facial scanning is becoming uh, very commonplace maybe you've heard of the new iPhone is that the new iPhone where actually it didn't work during the uh, the launch event but anyway uh, it's, it's also coming to an airport near you at Orlando International Airport Britain bound passengers some wearing Mickey Mouse t-shirts and other Disney paraphernalia lined up at gate 80 recently for the evening British Airways flight to London Gatwick Airport. It looks like any other airport departure area except for two small gates with what look like small boxes on posts next to them. These boxes are actually cameras. They were installed this month by SITA, the Geneva-based uh, company that uh, develops information technology for the world's airlines in conjunction with British Airways and US Customs and Border Protection, or CBT. Sherry Stein, a, a senior manager at SITA, says the cameras are triggered when passengers step onto designated footprints. These detect a photo, or these collect, sorry, uh, a photo, send it to the CBP who checks to make sure that that person is booked on the manifest and matches the photo that they already have on file. If everything matches, Stein says, we open the doors and give them the OK to board. All that happens, she says, in three to five seconds. Uh, if things don't match, the traveller's passport is scanned manually by a gate agent. The CBP is testing biometric scanning at dozens or so US international airports to ensure that people leaving the country are who they say they are and to prevent visa overstays. The Transportation Security Administration, uh, another agency within the Department of Homeland Security, is testing similar devices at security check-in lines. Uh, Steve Carori, who is the Acting Assistant Administration at TSA, calls the use of biometrics a game-changer for the aviation industry and uh, it will make things a little bit easier, more efficient at airport in the airport environment, he says. Uh, I'm not going to read any more of that story because it's sort of repeating itself, but I, I have to say I haven't found it overly successful here in, in the UK uh, when you arrive back at um, uh, sort of, well, bo both Heathrow, Stansted and Gatwick. It's not been uh, particularly successful when I've tried to use it. I, I think well, when myself and Owen came back from Toulouse, I think he got through straight away with his marvellous Irish parcel. That just worked straight away. But uh, not so for me, it has to be said. And I had to then go and join a long queue uh, to um, 
get myself uh, back into the country mm. well may maybe th there's something that you haven't told the authorities matt that that's what it is and there's always a, a big red you flag say comes up moving on. Uh, <laughs> no indeed skeletons in the closet well yeah. yes uh, we, 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 we'll, we'll gloss over that and move on the um uh, have, uh, have you used much of this um um sort of biometrics nev i mean do, do you have any trouble with yours well, I, I try and use it every time, but at Heathrow, at least, it works one out of five times, right. approximately. So, <laughs> okay, uh, and then you have to do the walk of shame, of course, if of it course. doesn't work. Uh, and then there's lots of tutting from your fellow passengers. But then I just have a quick look back, <laughs> and this hasn't worked either. So yes, I, I yes. feel a level of Vindicated. satisfaction. Vindicated, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah. um, obviously, biometrics is, I think, it must be a very difficult thing to do because... Um, uh, well, glasses, you know, yeah. different shaped faces. People have put on weight, lost weight, uh, different uh, makeup if you're a lady, or in some cases, men too. Um, yeah. So, and there's also fingerprints and all sorts of other things. So, it, it must be a very difficult thing to get absolutely right. But it's probably the only way um, for, in terms of being efficient, to, to get people through the airports, especially with the the very long range. Uh, operations that are going on on the very large aircraft you know on a uh, airbus a380 you know it's 550 people getting off the yeah, plane uh, you, don't, you don't need too many of those going through the airport no. to give yourself a real congestion problem is it i mean did, did, are they using biometrics much in the states yet uh well i guess they're using it at orlando international well, yeah. um, <laughs> this is the first that, that i've heard of it um i have not seen it but again you know what i do i i don't always go through all the different you know kind of hoops that you all have to go through as passengers so you know it could be that i'm just ignorant that maybe there is a lot of this happening but i have not seen it myself no uh, another thing that they mentioned here in the article which is important is according to a report by the capa center for aviation face recognition software is not so good at identifying ethnic mi minorities right. when most of the subjects used in training the technology were from the majority group and also maybe you guys did mention this about passengers wearing glasses or hats or scarves and, and nev you mentioned that you know the glasses thing sometimes throws mm -hmm. things off but um and four percent of travelers are wrongly rejected by the system well that could add up very very quickly and uh, they have to get it more accurate than that, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and this is the thing. I mean, again, uh, the comments in the chat room here are, are quite amusing. They're talking about, about this here. Um, uh, Captain Al saying you only have to observe the e-passport gates to see how this will be absolute carnage. And I have to say, certainly based on the technology that they're using at the moment, I kind of agree with him. I think, uh, I, I don't know, it's just like, I don't think it's good enough yet. I, I, I just don't think the systems are ready yet. It's... Um, I don't know. You know, they have a picture here of the uh, of the system at Orlando International, and I don't know if you noticed those little uh, those little uh, probes that are sticking out about halfway through this gate, little that you walk through. So apparently, if they don't like the way you look, then the tasers are activated, and <laughs> you uh, get an extreme electrical shock, right. and it's it's very okay. disheartening. That, that Direct action is is the way forward, though, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, yes, as 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 you say, as you've alluded to already, obviously they've got to do something because. Because um, you know you've got an A380 and it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? The the amount of people that are trying to get on and off uh, of the aeroplane. So you've got you've got to try and sort of speed these things up. But I'm just not sure that the technology is there yet. Really, uh, I've had it as I say, I've had it work once uh, in the whole time that I've uh, that I've been trying to go in into and out of security. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it is the shape of things to come, whether we like it or not. <laughs>
Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Um, so uh, next story is for you, uh, Captain Jeff. All right. Let me uh, pull it up. Those airport happiness meters, is that what we're doing? Yeah, that's the one. Oh, goody. All right. <laughs> and I see them all over the place. Uh, mostly in the bathrooms uh, at <laughs> yeah. the airports that I go to. Anyway, Agreed. Uh, have you ever pressed one of those smiley face buttons in airports? In turn, they translate your mood as dark green, delighted, green, happy, pink, sad, and red. Don't even ask. Well, they don't <laughs> do <mean>. anything. <laughs> they're, they're placebos, behavioral no. tools planted at strategic points at airports so the man can control your emotions and make you feel like you've been listened to. <laughs> or at least that's what I've been telling people for the past six years since a supposedly reliable source tipped me off after the buttons appeared at Heathrow ahead of the London Olympics. But last month, I had an epiphany at Luton Airport. It was 2 a.m., three hours later than my flight was scheduled to land. When I finally got through passport control, I punched the red emoji in the face twice before turning to my girlfriend, said reliable source, and asking, <laughs> are we sure these don't actually do anything? It turns out they do. Oh. They produce insights into when and where people are happiest, happiest and angriest across 160 airports in 36 countries, allowing staff to respond to negative responses in real time. After apologizing for my ongoing smear campaign, I asked Heike Vanyang. Very good. Yes, <laughs> the, that'll do. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of uh, letters with a lot of dots uh, over the top of them. So It's, uh, it's, it's where somebody's anyway. just mashed the keyboard. It's fine. It's, it's Finish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heike, Heike V., the CEO of Happy or Not, how his simple idea has revolutionized the way airports work, uh, one smiley face at a time. Why does the world need smiley feedback buttons? We had the idea for Happy or Not 15 years ago when I was frustrated by the poor customer service in a local gaming shop in Finland. There was no way for me to voice my dissatisfaction, so I could not expect the business to ever improve. Our technology lets the relationship between consumers and businesses evolve. Customers feel more valued, and companies can refine and perfect their services. Are they? Are the results always logged? Absolutely. The results are logged and transferred via a secure network to our web-based reporting service, where the results are amalgamated into the various charts and graphs ready made for analysis. There's no doubt that the use of our terminals has two values, providing airports with extensive and useful data while also making travelers feel empowered and valued. <laughs> yeah, when are the happiest times to travel? Looking at the data across all 160 airports we work with, the small hours at the weekend are the worst time to travel, while mornings midweek are consistently the happiest times. Specifically, 9 a.m. and 8 a.m. are the happiest times to travel, and 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. the unhappiest, perhaps unsurprisingly. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays are the most pleasant days to travel, Sunday and Saturday, the least. Really? The unhappiest place in the world is the baggage claim area. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm looking at the uh, caption. I'm sorry for the uh, for the photo. See? So it turns out that the uh, yeah the happiest part of the airport is um, security. What? No, that can't be true. Surely. <laughs> yeah, is that a misprint? That has got to be a misprint. Surely. And it says, or, or is it just uh, baggage? Perhaps, reclaim is the most aggravating. Perhaps people are, are, are terrified about uh, actually uh, saying how miserable they are uh, at uh, passport control for fear of uh, not being allowed through. Perhaps, perhaps that's what it is. It's like, no, 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 everything's well, now, fine here in security. 
Yeah. Well, that travels quite a, quite often. Would you agree that security would be the happiest part of the airport for you? Yeah. What, what, the other side of security, absolutely, yes. Oh, I figured it through. Through. <laughs> not, not, ah, not before. Uh, yeah, that's the one of the most stressful times, I think, uh, is security because everybody does it differently. Even the same o uh, airport owners seem to uh, have different rules depending on where you are. Yeah. And uh, I was just noticing that the very last bit of that article, uh, it says, does the red button get damaged more often? And the answer is no. The terminals are incredibly robust. We've noticed red buttons taking more damage than any of the others. In fact, our buttons are tested by 1 million presses with 220 newtons, which is 318 PSI of force. A short-range punch from a karate black belt averages 178 PSI. Right. Okay. Um, so, um, why is PSI? That's pressure, isn't it? Why? why yes. Well, I suppose it's, square inch. it yeah. is. Yes, I'm just wondering why they've used that in in this context. But anyway, um, yes, that that's some going, isn't it? Uh, no, no question about it. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I think, uh, think we'll. Um, well, I, I think that they, they we see these now at all airports, don't we? Yeah. Uh, with the, the satisfaction level. Maybe as somebody suggested in the, I think it was Tony S actually in the chat room. Maybe we should, we should apply these to aviation podcast, and and you can vote. No, you know? no, absolutely not. No, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Let's not do that. That might, that might be the way forward. Maybe. No, no, no. I couldn't, I, I couldn't disagree with, agree with you more. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. Lovely idea, Dan. Uh, but no. Well, it's. Yeah. Good try. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the the next story is on Flight Global, and uh, it says it's talking about the investigators' detailed Paris A320 incursion on a departing A330 aircraft. And investigators have disclosed that an Aeroflot Airbus A320 crossed a hold short line at Paris Charles de Gaulle, while an Airbus A330-300 had been conducting its departure from the same runway. The Air Transat A330 had been clear, cleared to take off from runway 27 left for a service to Montreal and had been lining up when its crew saw the A320 landing on the parallel runway 27 right. Both of the A330 pilots heard air traffic control instruct the A320 to hold short of 27 left as it taxied for the terminals and this was correctly read back by the Aeroflot crew, says the Transportation Safety mm -hmm. Board of Canada. But the board says, as the A330 accelerated through 120 knots, air traffic control queried the Aeroflot aircraft as to whether it had stopped and gave a second instruction to hold short. The board, said the flight crew, replied that they were stopped and holding short of runway 27 left. But it states that as the A330 passed the Aeroflot jet, its crew observed that it had stopped on the wrong side of the hold short line. Air Trans that's flight TS-397 had been transporting 308 passengers and 11 crew members at the time of the 8th of March incident. Metrological, meteorological data for Charles de Gaulle at the time indicates the presence of light rain, although visibility remained good. Runway 27 left, formerly designated 27, was the scene of a fatal runway incursion in May 2000 when an Air Liberté Boeing MD-83 rolling for takeoff struck a Shorts 330, which had previ previously been cleared to line up. I remember that uh, very well because I happened to be in Charles de Gaulle uh, the day that happened. Oh, no. I, it was a hotel overnight because it shut most of the airport. Yeah, I um, bet. But uh, yes, um, I think... 
Well, runway incursions are, are more common than one might think, uh, I, I would imagine, and so I'm what, sure what, they are all reported. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what, cl what classes? I was going to ask Jeff, actually, how, how difficult is it to to miss a, a hold short or, or, or cross a stop line? Well, there, there are many variables, many factors involved. You know, how I've never flown into uh, Charles de Gaulle, so I don't know how close those uh, two runways, uh, parallel runways are to each other and how long of, of a distance it is from clearing the one runway and holding short of the other one. It, it, they said that they did hold short of the runway, but they passed, they stopped on the wrong side, quote unquote, of the hold short line. And it doesn't really specify you know, was it just the the nose of the aircraft over the hold short line? Was it oh, the half lane. of the airplane, yeah. you know, on the wrong side of the hold short line? But it sounds to me like uh, they actually, you know, didn't transgress the actual runway itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's possible that uh, there was some confusion inside the uh, cockpit of the Aeroflot jet, and maybe the captain thought that they were cleared to cross two seven left, and perhaps the co-pilot said no we're not cleared to cross and so they just you know stopped it beyond where they were supposed to i'm guessing i don't know i don't remember this incident mm. i don't remember reading about it either there's always that situational awareness question isn't there because uh, charles de gaulle is notorious for using uh, french uh, or the atc use french a, a great deal especially for their home aircraft and, and maybe maybe for some of the canadians as well um, and uh, English for everybody else. And that must be quite disconcerting because um, you don't really know the, the full picture, do you? I think when you've right. got those sort of situations going on. But in, in this case, you know, one was an Air Transat, which is a Canadian airline, and the other uh, Aeroflot. I would imagine, I don't know, uh, I would imagine that they would be using English for mm, yeah. for this, but I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know how common it is for the uh, for them to use french at charles de gaulle but i have heard it going into montreal uh in uh really? quebec province uh canada and it's it is disconcerting because you hear they're having conversations with other jets out there but you have no idea because i don't speak french uh right. i don't know what they're saying and that kind of makes me feel like i'm losing some of my safety margin when that occurs because you, you're not aware of the conversation that's going on around you essentially Right, because yeah. when I go into an airport, uh, I'm listening to everybody on the frequency and and I'm listening to w where they are and I'm building this mental picture of mm. the spatial uh, situation. And, you know, if, if I hear somebody is clear to do something like clear to land or clear to take off or position and hold, uh, well, line up and wait now, I guess they're saying. Um, yeah. And uh, so in my mind, I'm picturing where all this is occurring. So that uh, if I get a conflicting clearance, I, I will, you know, that'll that'll raise a little red flag in my brain, and I'm I'm thinking, let's you know, ensure, let's query the controller regarding our clearance or the clearance of that other flight. And uh, it, it, when you start using other languages, especially languages that we don't understand, yeah. it just it takes out some of that safety factor, mm. in my opinion. So yeah. Captain Al in the chat room says that the uh, Air Transat guys use oh, French all the time. So Air uh, Transat yeah. must be then a Montreal-based uh, yeah, airline. Okay, okay. That, yeah. that makes sense. See, see I, I sort of kind of sort of assumed, I suppose perhaps in my naivety hit perhaps, is, is that perhaps, you know, even if it wasn't English, say everybody was told that they had to communicate with air traffic controls in, you know, a universal language, either that be English or French or whatever, I sort of... I was, 
I, I guess I kind of assumed that people wouldn't be necessarily communicating in their native language with the tower. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are. Perhaps Captain Al can uh, inform us because he flies to many different countries yeah. with many different languages, mm. uh, much more so than I do here in the U.S. Um, the only time I'm ever exposed to, you know, different languages or native languages is, as I said, going, you know, flying in the Quebec province and then uh, also Mexico and some of the Caribbean islands. Uh, but, uh, you know, 90% of the time or more, they're using the universal aviation language, which is English. But, yeah, um, yeah it's just, uh, I understand it's comfortable for the, for the people that speak the native language, but I really think that uh, safety is compromised when that, when that happens. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you that, sort of assume that, but... that everybody, you know, everybody almost needs to be speaking the same language just to make sure that everybody knows what's going on around them. Um, and I'm very, very happy that uh, they chose English as yeah. that universal language because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I'd be doing this job if I had to learn another language <laughs> and learn how to fly at the same time. Yeah, I'm okay. just amazed at some of these uh, you know, pilots from uh, Asia and other parts of the world where they have to, not only do they have to learn how to fly an airplane, a sophisticated airplane at that, but they also have to learn a language that it's not their native language. And uh, mm. I'm, I'm just amazed. How they can do it, actually. Uh, Captain Alst just said in the chat room here, actually, in France, controllers are legally, under French law, required to speak French to French airlines. Which, wow. Uh, I must that admit, is, is a bit of a surprise. <laughs> yeah. That seems very unfair on everyone else who's flying into and out of these. I mean, especially, again, as an example, Charles de Gaulle Air Airport. I mean, that is uh, an airline that... Uh, is uh, you know it's an airport sorry where where not just french speaking nationals are, are flying into and out of i mean because that's a major hub isn't it i mean you've got people coming from all over the world going into going into there hmm. yeah um i would imagine or i i would be curious captain al if you agree with me that that in in some way compromises that safety margin and also tony says i wonder how long it'll be before all clearances are given using CPDLC, uh, and uh, that is basically digital communications. And Tony, I really highly doubt that we'll ever get to the point where we're using, you know, text messaging or CPDLC for operations close in to the airport and the runways and everything else because the time is, is, is of an essence when something is happening, somebody's doing something wrong, the tower can't just type something in, wait for that data to be transmitted, and then read by the pilots in the airplane and then respond to it it's just it's there mm. the the time Agreed. frame is just too long and it's uh i don't see how that could ever happen and and if it does i'm hoping it's going to be long after i've retired <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, captain al's actually uh chipped in again uh, saying that uh, when when he used to fly for royal jet uh we flew with uh air is it Med mediterranean Mediterranean. 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 <laughs> yeah, very good. Very nice. Uh, yeah, you're pr practically a native. You're just, you're just, uh, <laughs> yeah. ro rolling your eyes <laughs> and everything. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, anyway, so we had to uh, we had to put a remark in the flight plan to say that English language only. Uh, that's uh, an interesting uh, huh. a, a thing. Yeah. Who knows? And he says he agrees that it has a massive impact on on safety. 
So good. I, I had a feeling that he would agree with mm. me on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh. Uh, I, as a non non flying person, uh, would also agree with you there, Captain Jeff. I think it is. A, yeah, it makes me feel. A little... I think everybody agrees with me, and that's yeah. where it should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Quite right. Absolutely, indeed. And if you don't agree with me, push that big red button there on that uh, panel that you have mm. in front of you. Uh, right. Okay. What? The, uh, okay. The happy button. Happy ah, button. I see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, very good. Uh, I've got to stop saying the word absolutely. I'm using that a lot today. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're even irritating absolutely. yourself. By now. I am irritating absolutely even myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm annoying even myself. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Well, the last that's uh, bad when you annoy yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, last that happens an awful lot. So. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how they've put up with me on Friday. I really don't. Uh, well, it did very, very well, didn't we? There was no biting or scratching. It no, was, absolutely. Was, we played yeah. very nicely, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> that may have had a lot to do with the cider that we'd had the night before. But we'll, yeah. Anyway, <sighs> the next story: the Flight Global is the website. The headline is Delta, a prime launch candidate for the new Boeing model. So Delta Airlines chief executive Ed. Bastian says that the airline would like to be, would be a prime launch candidate for Boeing's proposed new mid-market airplane, the NMA. Uh, so the Atlanta-based carrier is in discussions with the airframer on the potential aircraft with Bastian himself meeting with Boeing uh, executives in uh, Seattle to discuss it during the week of the 5th of March, he says uh, at the JP Morgan Aviation Transport and Industrials Conference today. The NMA, the NMA family will seat 220 to 270 passengers with a range of roughly 5,000 nautical miles, or that's 9,260 kilometres, if you prefer, when it enters service, uh, which Boeing expects to be between 24 and uh, 2024 and uh, stroke 2025 timeframe. Delta will need to replace its 127 757s and 79 767s uh, to aircraft. The NMA is targeted as a replacement for in the second half of the next decade, says Bastian. The airline configures its 757s, including the Dash 200 and Dash 300, with up to 234 seats, and its 767s, including the Dash 300ER and Dash 400ER, with up to 261 seats, its website shows. Delta operates 111 757-200s with an average age of 21.3 years, 16 757-300s that averages 15.1 years, 58 767-300ERs uh, that average 21.9 years, and 21767-ERs uh, that average 17.2 years. Flight Fleet's analyzer shows that was a bit of a mouthful. Uh, we would like, uh, we would like, uh, sorry, we would be a prime launch candidate for the NMA aircraft, the 797, or whatever they decide to call it, says uh, Bastian. Uh, his comments come about a month after reports that he told pilots that the carrier hoped to launch the NMA program. So Boeing has yet to officially launch the program, though it created a dedicated office to study and develop the NMAs back in September 2017. So, uh, yes, going down the Boeing route, it seems. Mm. Yes, um, and I think that the the thing that staggers me about the US airlines is that just the size of them, the number of aircraft, yeah. the size of the airports, the size of the hubs, it's just incredible. And obviously, we, in our small island here, we're just not used to that kind of thing at all. So when they talk about, uh, oh, we're going to replace uh, 127 757s, <laughs> you know, you go, wow, it's just 
incredible, isn't it, for that? So, and and sort of, uh, as far as I'm concerned, good risen to the damn things. But anyway, that's just me personally. Uh, no, we, we like the 757, but only uh, for a 400-mile round trip. Not, yeah, not, not much further. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I think that you've exper- your experience is exactly that. You know, yeah. they're using it on a on a route segment that sh- it should not be used on. Yeah, no, indeed. It, it, it's, uh, yes, it, it, but it's nice, as I say, because for the first time ever, I, I can talk passionately about an aircraft that I despise. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there we are. But in this case, the new market, um, uh, what are they calling it? Uh, new, mar- new market alternative? or uh, like, Yeah, yeah, basically it's a mid-market alternative. Yeah. Oh, mid-market airplane, okay. Yeah, mid-market uh, airplane. Now, it doesn't say in this article uh, much about what this airplane will be other than, you know, capacity and range yeah. and that kind of thing, but I've heard a lot of rumors that it is likely to be a twin-aisle uh, aircraft. Right. So okay. even if it's used on those longer, uh, those longer route segments, it should be relatively comfortable as far as... Uh, yeah. Okay. traveling is concerned yeah no fair point no fair point it's, uh, it's just yeah. <laughs> i'd say it's just the, the, ironically the 767 i had a much much more more enjoyable experience with uh, again i suppose it's just uh coming backwards and forwards from you know london to to um to uh where was it i think it was washington dulls as i call it <laughs> yes <laughs> we came well into. you know and uh you know, i understand your perspective is going to going to be different from the perspective of those of us who are sitting on the other side of that cockpit door yep. and i can tell you that almost every single pilot that's flown the 757 i have not yet uh, that has said that it's just like one of the best airplanes they've ever really? flown in their lives. Okay. So it's it gets very high marks from pilots. I'm quite happy to be stood corrected. As it were, oh, no, but, you know, we're not back there with you, Matt, <laughs> no. uh, sitting in the back all scrunched up together. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I understand your perspective is going to be different than ours. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the room, actually, because, I mean, I, I, one was in premium economy. Uh, so I was, I was mm-hmm. quite comfortable where I was, thank you very much. Uh, it, was just, it was just that, the, as I say, there, there, was, there was a problem towards the end of the flight. I don't know whether the air pressures or something weren't quite right. But, uh, as I say, it was really just sort of I felt more uncomfortable because of the, of the air, if you like, in, 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 rather than anything else. And it may be, again, because mm. of the sheer amount of time. Uh, that uh, anyway, I keep going on about it, and I've got to stop. It may have been you know, something that you ate, perhaps, uh, before you uh, boarded. That is true. United, no, I'm just kidding. United... That's a different kind of uh, error than we're than you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mind you, I have to agree with Matt there. Every time I've had some ear pressure problems, it's been oh, dear. <laughs> um, it's been uh, on a seven five seven, and it's really? always been uh, from the top of descent you know, down to about, yep. uh, you know, three or 4,000 feet. Mm. So I don't know whether they, um, how the air uh, pressurized the, uh, maybe? pressurization differential is is adjusted or whether it goes down in a very even way or perhaps it goes down in a different way. To well, you know, it, it might be the uh, cabin pressure controller system on the 757 is different than the 767 and, and many of the other aircraft. But I have a feeling... That has a lot to do with the fact that when this airplane was designed um, and initially built and delivered, it was, uh, you know, they built the cabin pressurization controllers based on the way that people used to fly airplanes, which is a nice gradual descent, et cetera. And nowadays, with uh, fuel economy a major consideration, uh, they are, you know, preaching, teaching and preaching for us pilots to do these procedures where you stay up at altitude as absolutely as long as you can. And then 
basically pulling back the engines to idle power and making quite steep descents, much steeper than we used to in the past. And guess what? If the air conditioning pressurization system is not up to providing a nice smooth pressure uh, differential yeah. change, you're going to be experiencing an uncomfortable you know, situation with your ears. And um, I tend to fly, and, and my airplane's the same way. It was not designed to you know, start off a descent at 35,000 feet, pull the power back to idle, and then just come screaming down out of the sky right. while the pressure controllers do their best to provide a nice rate of descent for the uh, cabin altitude. And I tend to descend much earlier than most pilots that I fly with because I am considering the fact that you're sitting back there. And I'm sitting in the airplane as well, and I'm experiencing the same thing you are. Uh, and I know that it's uncomfortable, especially if you have maybe a little bit of a cold or an onset of a cold coming up. Uh, so uh, I always try to make a nice smooth transition from cruise altitude to the in route descent and try not to be at the point where you're at idle power screaming out of the sky. Yeah, and so, it's um, yeah. I, I, I wish, in some respects, perhaps uh, more people, uh, more pilots, were perhaps as considerate as your good self, because <laughs> it's uh, as you say. But you know, they teach us to do that, and and a lot of these um, arrival procedures now basically are built for that, and they have uh, altitude and speed uh, constraints that that's the only way you can fly them is by. Mm you know, pulling the power way back. And as I said, you know, it depends on when the airplane was built and how it was designed. Yeah. I would imagine the newer generation airplanes are probably designed for that type of uh, profile. Yeah. And that's why in a lot of the different airplanes that you're flying in, you don't have that problem. But yeah. perhaps the 757, the Mad Dogs that I fly are, uh, you know, a couple of examples of airplanes that just really can't handle that kind of descent no. or in fact, can in handle it, but not very well. In fact, uh, Captain Captain uh, Al has said in the chat room here, the 757 uses Massey Ferguson-style pressurization technology, which is, sounds rather derogatory, I have to be honest. But... It does sound a, a wee bit derogatory, yes. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, uh, that is where we bring the commercial section of the show to a close. Yes, and this week uh, there is no Nev's passenger <gasps> experience segment. Oh, <laughs> a tragedy, I realise, but there's a reason for that, yes. in that we want to give a bit more time to our special guest. Indeed. And we're going to be talking to him uh, later on. After... <laughs> oh, exactly. It's, it's that guy from the Atlanta region. Yeah, very um, good. And um, <laughs> So we're going to be having a quick chat with uh, Captain Jeff uh, after the military segment. We've got uh, four military stories uh, this week, uh, you'll be pleased to know. Yeah. Um, but that all comes up uh, after these words. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. The Plane Talking UK podcast is a voluntary project that aims to keep you informed with the latest aviation-related stories from newswires across the globe. Producing our content does cost money, though. If you enjoy our show, why not help us keep on the air by making a donation towards the server and website hosting fees through PayPal? Any contributions would be greatly appreciated. Are you an Amazon user? If so, why not do your shopping through the link on our website? There's no cost to yourself, and Amazon pay us a small referral fee on qualifying purchases. To find out more about the show and to meet the team, take yourself to our website 
www.plaintalkinguk.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash plaintalkinguk on Twitter via at plaintalkinguk or get in touch via email on podcast at plaintalkinguk.com Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Flyby 5823 Trent Dane for 23R Manchester with Air 6X Client Flight Level 210 Direct to Brooklyn's Park United 123, maintain 280 knots. Tandem 2DME, turn right onto Bravo, link 21, join Alpha, hold at Mora, Speedbird 472, LOC slash DME, approach runway 27 left. Follow the green stand 544. That's enough air traffic control for today, Nat. Bedtime. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to fly a commercial passenger jet? Looked up at the sky and thought, I wish that was me? Well, now anyone has the chance to have a go at flying in a real aircraft simulator. NP Simulations and Flight Experience London, the only official Boeing-licensed product of its kind in the UK, offer you the chance to fly anywhere in the world in their fixed-base Boeing 737-800 flight simulator. And that's not all. Ground School London offers many different courses for the up-and-coming pilot looking for a start in aviation. With prices starting at just £109, the sky's the limit. So for the ultimate flight simulator experience or engaging preparatory courses, including those for schools and colleges, check out the websites at www.london.flightexperience.co.uk and www.groundschoollondon.com or call on 020 340 616. NP Simulations. Fly your dreams. So it's time for the military segment. If you're ready, uh, Matt. I am indeed. And you're ready, Captain Jeff. I am ready. Off we go. first uh, story this week comes from forces.net and uh, in the centenary year for the Royal Air Force the Voyager Force is also turning 10 years old. Forces Radio BFPS takes a look at the RF Voyager, the largest aircraft in the RAF, and the systems in place to keep it operational and in the air. The RAF Voyager is a modified Airbus A330 frame, which is responsible for transporting personnel from all three armed forces around the globe from its base at RAF Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire. Much more than a civilian aircraft, the Voyager can uh, move personnel into theatre thanks to its defensive capabilities and be re-rolled for large loads and aeromedical evacuation. It is also the UK's air-to-air refuelling capability, being used in exercise and operations around the world daily, extending the range of the air transport and fast jet fleet. After each air-to-air mission, the refuelling pods must be checked and the hoses trailed out to ensure the components are in good order after receiving an aircraft that has been connected. Thanks to strong industry partnerships, spare parts are readily available across all civilian airports. And uh, they explain that the challenges come from visiting the more austere environments. 
And um, the aircraft, um, which are maintained in the air tank hub, home to the Voyager Force, is a mixture of civil air crew alongside Number 10 Squadron and Number 101 Squadron. And they operate the aircraft from the huge hangar. The hangar is so big, you could fit the Tower of London inside just one of the maintenance bays. If you were to fill up the hangar with water, it would take the equivalent of 96 Olympic swimming pools. And it's uh, certainly uh, quite a beast. And I see them quite regularly as RAF Bryce not it's not too far from where i live here so uh, uh, when they're doing quite a lot of operations I, I see them quite regularly uh, flying over my house uh, yeah, going they're, somewhere they're, 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 they're impressive bits of kit aren't mm. they there's no uh, no two ways about that yes. uh, why would you want to put the tower of london in there i don't understand <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's always uh, have to make comparisons don't they about <laughs> yeah. you know so many number of football pitches or swimming pools or whatever i mean i think there's a better way of comparing it than that <laughs> yeah i think i think you might be right there <laughs> i don't know yes. i don't know it's it's it's, it's, uh, it's 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 not like it's an object you can pick up either and just sort of throw yeah. in there. But yeah, anyway, on to the next story. This is on the defensenews.com website, and the headline is "US Air Force Adds New Deficiencies to the KC-46's List of Problems." So it's obviously an aircraft that's uh, not having a good time, shall we say, of late. Uh, so the story is based out of Washington, and it says the US Air Force's troubled KC-46 tanker program has hit another bump, adding two uh, of the most serious types of deficiencies yet to the list of problems manufacturer Boeing needs to fix. The service on, on Thursday evening disclosed two Category 1 deficiencies involving the remote vision system and centerline drogue systems, uh, and there is no concrete timeline by which these issues will be fixed, Air Force spokeswoman Anne Stefanik has said in an email. The first deficiency centres on the KC-46's remote vision system made by Rockwell Collins. The RVS is used by the the boom operator to safely steer the boom into the receiver's aircraft receptacle in all weather conditions. The RVS performance is not meeting the Air Force's requirements. That in turn is contributing to another previously disclosed issue, undetected contact outside the receptacle, or in layman's terms, uh, a, uh, an increased likelihood of scraping the exterior of a receiver aircraft with the boom, which I don't think you don't think you want to do. Uh, to combat this, this deficiency, Boeing is developing a software fix to the RVS that will hopefully make it more efficient. The Air Force will begin flight testing the amended system this month. If successful, the service may be able to cross out um, uh, both the RVS and the undetected contact deficiencies at the same time. The second deficiency revolves around the centerline drogue system, or the CDS. During tests, the Air Force found that sometimes the receiver aircraft unexpectedly disconnects from the CDS. That's quite a serious issue. Uh, this uh, doesn't pose any immediate safety risks, and the Air Force and Boeing are conducting systems engineering analysis to determine the cause of the problem and how to, to mitigate it. We are confident that the, safe, the KC-46 will meet the USAF's operational need uh, safely and effectively, Boeing spokesman uh, Chick Ramey said in a statement, we will continue to refine those capabilities with the Air Force, including the remote vision system and the centerline drogue system. Boeing is flight testing a software enhancement this month that we expect will improve visibility. Uh, although the new issues have crocked up, the Air Force is making progress in solving other KC-46 problems. It recently downgraded two deficiencies, one of which involved the high frequency radio and the other where the boom would push 
forward uh, into the receptacle upon disconnect from category one to category two. So they're obviously making progress um, with these issues, but uh, I must admit, although they say it's no immediate you know, safety issue, I don't like the idea of it sort of disengaging whilst refueling. That can't be. I mean, it's obviously shutting off quickly, but uh, it doesn't sound... Um, it sounds like they've got a few bugs to work out still. Yes, and I'm sure that there's lots of um, mechanical and software things going on as well. So it's not just yeah. one thing, it's, it's several things probably, isn't it? Uh, interestingly enough, it's Boeing that are the ones who are doing the software update r rather than the people that built the, the system. That, that seems a bit strange to me, but uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, that. But uh, yes, it looks like they're, they're getting some things fixed, which is, which is the main thing. So, that is, yes. um, so over to you, uh, Captain, Captain Jeff, for the, uh, the third uh, military story. Okay. Oh, and I think we're about to hear some uh, audio from this. Let me mute Ooh. this before that happens. The Memphis Bell Ooh. towed into Air Force Museum for first time. Oh. Uh, let's see. The World War II B-17 bomber, Memphis Bell, which arrived in pieces and sat for years in a restoration hangar at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force, will be moved Wednesday evening to its display location. The iconic bomber will be unveiled in May next to a new strategic bombing exhibit inside the World War II gallery. A curator said that the four-engine bomber with the famous nose art of two women will be displayed in a very dramatic and impressive way at the world's largest military aviation museum, but won't say exactly what that means. <laughs> Here's a quote from Jeff Duford. It will be displayed like we've never done before, and visitors will be able to get up or get close to the aircraft and the plane will be surrounded by bell crewman's artifacts artifacts from funny metal decorations to the radio operator's boots the bell will be kept under a tarp until its debut may 5th may 17th the 75th anniversary of the plane's final mission against nazi germany to become the first army air force's heavy bomber to fly 25 combat missions over war ravaged europe and returned to the United States. The airplane grew to fame in two movies and a nationwide whirlwind war bonds tour after reaching the wartime milestone in May 1943. The story that's attached to it, it's fame, it's unique, Duford said. There is no other heavy bomber airplane that represents the more than 30,000 airmen who died in heavy bombers in the fight against Germany. It's a national treasure. Since arriving from Tennessee in 2005, the plane has stood inside an old restoration hangar. The Memphis Bell will replace the B-17 Shoo Shoo Baby, which was <laughs> to be pulled out Wednesday and will eventually head to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, Casey Simmons, a museum aircraft restorer, labored with other others for years in painstaking detail to get everything right on the reborn Bell from remaking unseen aircraft parts to detailed nose art repainted by hand. Working on the airplane, you get so close to it, it's kind of just like you're working on another airplane, he said. It doesn't seem like the Memphis Bell, but it's when you go home and you start thinking about it, what you did, that it actually hits you that, wow, this is pretty monumental and amazing. Two B-17Gs will fly over the Miami Valley and about 130 reenactors will appear at the museum during the commemoration of the bell and World War II set for May 17th through May 19th. Wow. 
I mean, it is an iconic aircraft, isn't it? I mean, mm. it's it's everybody knows what it looks like. Everybody's familiar with the you know the two ladies on the front that they're talking about. The films obviously are, are very well loved and liked. I mean, it, it is. It, they're right. It is an iconic aircraft, and it's it's nice if you like. It's got a, a sort of a final resting home. Yeah. Yes. No. It's great, isn't it? And good, good, good. To see, uh, um, legacy aircraft being being put to uh, uh, a place where good display use, as they say. Indeed. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, who'd like to take the last story then? Shall I? Shall I do the honours? Go on then. Okay. All right then. So the last story then. This is the last story for the military. This is from the Sky News website. Uh, thank you to Jonathan Warner for sending this one in. And uh, the headline is: Saudi Arabia signs a preliminary deal to buy 48 Typhoon jets from the UK. The memorandum of intent means that the deal still needs to be formalised, but there are not expected to be any obstacles. So Saudi Arabia has signed a preliminary deal to buy 48 Typhoon fighter jets from the UK. The jets made by British company BAE Systems are part of a multi-billion pound deal which has been under discussion for many years. BAE confirmed the news in a statement saying this is a positive step towards agreeing a contract for our valued partner. We are committed to supporting the kingdom as it modernises the Saudi armed forces and develops key industrial capabilities critical to the delivery of Vision 2030. Shares in BAE Systems went up by 2.7% on the news. The preliminary deal comes on the day, final day of a three-day official visit by Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The visit included talks with Prime Minister Theresa May, the Archbishop of Canterbury and an audience with the Queen. Oh, how, how very lovely for him. Uh, there was also an estimated £65 billion worth of additional trade agreed for the coming years as part of the Crown Prince's vision for the 2030 economic plan. So Sky News defence correspondent Alistair Bunkle said that the memorandum of intent still required the details to be ironed out before a final contract is signed. But he added, you wouldn't expect things to go backwards now though a recent example of uh, is uh, Qatar he says getting very nervous every time he says that who signed <laughs> a statement of intent for 24 typhoons back in September 2017 and then final contract in December 2017 before he his visit the 32 year old crown prince talked about the importance of security ties between the Britain and and Saudi Arabia all very good so, uh, yes, so it's... Uh, uh, do we need them? I mean, are we able to sell them? I mean, I thought perhaps we needed them all, but... Well, well yes, it's always nice when they get the checkbook out, isn't it? Well, and, that's uh, nice, so absolutely. Sell maybe, some of our fine no, product. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it could pay channels. for Brexit. Anyway, sorry. No, it's, it's zero <laughs> Don't stop that again. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well... Oh, but, uh, yeah, that's a good news story, isn't it, for change? Yeah, it is. And that's where we conclude the military segment. So um, that wasn't too painful, was it? I think no, we should no. do it more often. No, um, it was in <laughs> danger of being interesting. <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, yeah there absolutely. we are. So, uh, Did we do well? Right, now this is the time you've all been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're going to... Uh, <laughs> He's sighing. You can hear him in the background. Yeah, Jeff, for... Jeff's not happy about this no, at no, all. No. <laughs> Never mind. It's good for him. Um, I feel like I've been, I've been ambushed here. Pretty much, yeah. That, that was the plan. Yeah. So, okay. uh, ladies and gentlemen, in the chat room, if you are watching uh, live on YouTube, this is your opportunity to get your questions directly in to the main man. You haven't, you haven't got to go through Dr. Steph on this occasion, you know, so there's, there's no filter. Ask away. No, there's, there's no moderating. <laughs> it's just, just straight through, isn't it? Yeah. So the first question is from Tony S. A question for Captain Jeff. 
if you were the head of training at Acme, what would you change to help improve safety? Ooh. Well, if I were king, <laughs> I would put much more emphasis on manual flying skills and much more emphasis on the fact that automation is not something that we have to depend upon so much, uh, almost as a crutch, and uh, look at it as a tool that we can use and not be constrained to use the automation in a, uh, an exact way or a, a, a specified way, or at least be, it's, it's not that we're being constrained in that way, but the, the impression is, especially if you're new to the airline and you're going through the training program, is that they only teach you the one way of doing a certain thing. So you, you kind of take that as this is the way that this company wants me to fly this airplane. And I would make sure that uh, pilots understand that they're a pilot first, that they can use their brains and their skills that they've uh, cultivated over the years <laughs> uh, to actually, you know, fly the airplane and use the automation as they deem appropriate and not feel like if they do something like that, that they're doing something wrong. Uh, that would be my, my big thing. You know, the, the uh, FAA, the NTSB for many, many years and the FAA finally uh, put out some uh, some uh, memos to airlines uh, several years back saying that you now we, we've noticed now that the number one cause of aircraft accidents uh, has shifted from controlled flight into terrain to loss of control incidents. And we think a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that pilots are uh, kind of losing these basic flying skills in, a, in large part in their opinion and in mine, is the fact that uh, the way that our standard operating procedures are are tailored is such that it, it enforces the idea that we have to use automation almost exclusively, that we are not to, you know, ever, you know, practice our manual flying skills. And, and the NTSB and the FAA now are finally saying, you know what, um, maybe it'd be a good idea to uh, start, uh, you know, when it's appropriate, uh, turn the automation off. And, and I have to be very clear about this because I've been mistaken. My position on this has mis been mistaken many times. I don't mean like go out to the airplane and completely fly a flight from takeoff to climb to cruise, descent, approach, and landing completely without automation. I mean, you know, at certain points, uh, fly the airplane maybe more than you would. Let's say, you know, instead of throwing the autopilot auto flight system on at 500 feet above the ground on takeoff, why not fly the airplane until you're getting into the flight levels? Right. And uh, for us in the U.S., that would be 18,000 feet. And, uh, you know, kind of just to get a feel for the airplane, how it flies, feel comfortable with that. And then how about instead of flying your approach into a busy airport completely on automation, the ILS approach and everything, and then clicking the thing off just a couple hundred feet above uh, touchdown, why not coming into the uh, airport uh, terminal area, uh, maybe in the, in the mid-teens or 10,000 feet or maybe 8,000 feet, turn everything off. 
hand fly the airplane just so you remember how to do this in case you need to do that. You're pressed to do that at some point uh, in an emergency situation. Well, so. Again, of course, because there is a, there is that possibility that whilst the automation is is marvelous, of course, there there could well be a scenario where where that doesn't work for whatever reason. And if you haven't done it, like basically since you started flying, that that could be a problem. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you know, we have. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of uh, bulletins and and, uh, and and I hate to use the term lip service uh, yeah. to, you know, kind of conforming, complying with the FAA's requirement and request that uh, that airline training departments emphasize flying the aircraft manually. Um, and the reason why I say it's sort of like lip service is that there's not, I have not seen, and, and maybe it's just me in my own anecdotal experience, but I have not seen any really difference in in behavior of the people flying the airplane that I'm flying with, uh, they're they're still, you know, using uh, automation way beyond where I think it's necessary to use, yeah. and uh, and that's you know that's troubling to me, and I'm concerned about that. There's a couple of other things that I'm concerned with as well, uh, that don't really have anything to do with safety, but more have to do with uh, tradition hmm. as pilots, as as professionals in this uh, line of work. Um, such as, you know, uniform wear, uh, interaction with customers, mm. that kind of thing, where I, I'm seeing a, a big degradation in the importance and emphasis of that uh, in the last 5, 10, 15 years. And uh, it's, it's just uh, something that, no, it doesn't affect the safety of operating the airplanes and the flights, but it does affect, I think, our our professionalism and how we're viewed by the public. I, I, in fact, I would agree with you there a, a, a lot, Jeff, because actually, I mean, most of the flying that I've always done has been with what I call, the, you know, the, this low-cost um, airline model. And, of course, you don't get any of that. And, and what, what did really sort of take me a little bit by surprise almost was actually that when I okay it was it was with United um, and, but we were greeted by the captain and the first first officer as we were sort of board you know and they sort of took it in turns if you see what I mean to, to sort of greet you as you were as you were coming on the you know and just chatting I didn't stay out there for the whole time but like you know if you if you timed it it was actually quite nice to see them having a chat with people and and sort of interacting as you say with the people that you're about to, to take somewhere I, I thought it was really nice you know, I think it is. It's important. I think, um, as far as you know, just building that that level of trust, mm -hmm. that level of confidence. I mean, mm -hmm. even the way you speak on the PA, um, I think, really makes a a big difference, especially with people. And I've talked about this quite a lot. That uh, you know, you have a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred or more people on that airplane, and uh, on the scale of anxiety, I think that there are some people that have maybe zero to very little anxiety about flying. Um, probably most is more likely a, a, a bell curve. You probably have, you know, a bulk of people that are somewhat anxious, but mm. not, you know, going crazy with that. And then you have people at the other end of the scale, which are, have high anxiety. And I think it's very important that we do several things to alleviate some of that anxiety. And I think one of those is the interaction that you uh, spoke about, Matt. And then yeah. also, you know, talking on the public address system in a very calm and assuring 
manner. And I think, you know, I've had several comments by people in the past, even notes that I've kept that said that, you know, I just love the way you were talking on the PA system. It really made me feel like, wow, I'm confident that this pilot really knows what he's doing, even yeah. if I don't. Um, <laughs> but I sound like I do. That's one of the things I learned in the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> when you yeah. when you push that microphone button, sound like yeah. you are cool, calm, and yeah. collected. Even and though as the, soon as you let go of it, even if it, everything is going terribly, as soon as you can you know, let go of that uh, that uh, yeah. microphone button, you can scream and cry yeah. and do whatever. But yeah. uh, you know, make sure you sound good on the radio. It's it's that it's that whole duck swimming scenario, isn't it? Where you where you've got you know uh, above the water, it's completely calm, serenity personified itself. <laughs> Underneath, the legs are going at nineteen to the dozen, just trying to make sure. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we, we'll move uh, on so, to. Yeah. We'll move on to another question, if we may, sir. And uh, this one is from uh, the legendary Armando, who we had here in the studio a few weeks back. Uh, he says, Captain Jeff, since you mentioned it, I have two questions regarding first officers. And the first question is, what makes a good first, uh, what makes a good first officer good to fly with, other than not being weird? Well, you know, not being weird is definitely an important thing. Right. It's high uh, on the list that, of you know, you know, yeah. the weirdness is in the eye of the beholder, I think. <laughs> um, so what makes a good FO to fly with? Well, Obedience. And this is, <laughs> what's that? Obedience, maybe. <laughs> Obedience, yeah. yes. Uh, complete uh, deference. Uh, deference. Right. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> buying the, the uh, captain... Uh, every cup of coffee that of he requires. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, sort of. So, okay. So this is not so much the case as it used to be, but I still think that uh, there is a certain level of this that is required for a good first officer. And that is the characteristic of being a chameleon. And by that, I mean that you, even though we are in a world now where everything is much more standardized, which is a good thing, and it really is a, an important uh, safety factor. Uh, but uh, because when I started flying for Acme almost 30 years ago, um, yes, I'm that ancient, uh, the, uh, wow, what happened to my screen? It just disappeared. Okay, it's back. Uh, not that I need it because I'm just talking to this camera. Um, but uh, when I was hired uh, three decades ago, uh, there were some of these oddball um, captains of old were still flying. And uh, some, even though the airline was really trying hard to standardize procedures, um, there were still a few that kind of fell through the cracks and were a little bit odd and did things kind of their own way. And you had to uh, kind of be a chameleon and, and try to match uh, or conform to, you know, what worked best for this particular captain. And it just made life a lot easier in that small little area that we call the cockpit or flight deck. And uh, not so much a factor now because uh, everything is so much more standardized than it used to be. And most captains, I would imagine, although I never really fly with any other captain, I only fly with my favorite captain which is me. Right, of um, course. <laughs> so I don't really get exposed to how other captains uh, behave or uh, operate the, uh, the airplane. Uh, although I do hear occasionally from my first officers, you know, when they talk about others, but that doesn't happen that often. Uh, and uh, I think that we're all pretty much, you know, the same, pretty standardized. So the, that uh, ability to be a chameleon and adapt to what the captain likes and how he likes to operate is not quite so much uh, an important thing anymore mm. as it uh, not as important as it, it used to be um, but um, being 
confident, being, um, uh, you know, knowing how to use the various tools at our disposal, like the automation, not being, you know, overly dependent upon uh, automation, yeah. you know, showing that uh, you can actually fly an airplane and that you haven't forgotten how to do that. Um, being, um, and you know, as far as social skills, uh, I've flown with some that are very, very, you know, not very good at social skills and others that are almost too gregarious, <laughs> but most of us fall within that range somewhere, which is good. You know, we'll, we'll have a conversation and then we'll be quiet for a while. You know, we have our little quiet time and then uh, we'll maybe have a discussion about something else and it's, you know, very paced and, uh, you know, it's most of us are kind of, you know, somewhere in the average area as far as that's concerned. Although occasionally... I'll fly with somebody who just will not stop talking. And, you know, I'm finding myself looking out the window, rolling my eyes, thinking, will they please shut up? Yes. I just want five uh, minutes I've... of peace, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like me, you know, right right now I'm talking like uh, I'm one of those guys that just won't shut up. But <laughs> I'm on a podcast yeah, right but... now, and if I stop talking, then it's going to be very dull. Yeah, don't so, look at me. I I, I I, should... I, I've run out of things to say about, about sort of 200 shows ago, so that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, <laughs> huh, so uh let's see what else. Um having the the um desire and um willingness to uh be good role models and to be good um representatives of our profession, uh, especially not only in the cockpit and around other people in our profession, but also um you know being a good role model and a representative of our profession to the public yeah. and not, you know, um, diminishing uh, our importance and diminishing our skills and uh, making it sound like anybody can just get into an airplane and push a few buttons and fly an airplane. And, you know, even though we joke around, you know, the guys that are flying Airbuses, that's all they do. Well, that's <laughs> not true at all. It's, they are, you know, I wish that everybody could really be up in, and you can do this by going to YouTube and uh, you can see a lot of videos how things are happening on these, uh, these very automated flight decks, mm -hmm. so to speak. And we're still very busy doing things. Yeah. And it's not like the airplane is just flying itself. And I always cringe when somebody, you know, like a, somebody's coming up to the cockpit and we're giving them a little tour. And is it hard to fly an airplane? Oh, no, no. We just, you know, push a few buttons and it just flies <laughs> itself, really. And I'm thinking, why? You know, yeah. you have worked so hard to get to this place. <laughs> and why are you just going to completely wipe that out by making it sound like we're just a couple of monkeys up here pushing buttons? <laughs> I just, it really, really makes me sad when somebody does that. It's very interesting, uh, Jeff, and actually, uh, just along those lines, uh, Neil Lanwarn says, uh, do you wish we could get back to a point where flight deck visits were possible during flight, even if it was something that took additional security checks? I certainly do. I mean, I think that, that I, I remember it wasn't that long ago. I think I was, uh, uh, well, not for me anyway, maybe for some of you, it was long before you were born, but... Um, when I when I think about flying before 9/11 and before all this extreme security, um, I, I remember flying on an airplane. I think it was an American flight. It may have been a Mad Dog. I'm not sure what kind of airplane. I don't remember exactly. But uh, during the flight, the captain comes out of the cockpit, is walking back and and discussing uh, things with the passengers, making sure everybody's okay, enjoying the flight and that kind of thing. And I thought to myself. 
wow, I can't wait to be that guy, to, to be able to get out of the airplane during flight, go back and talk to the passengers and all that kind of stuff. Of course, you know, we can't do that now. Uh, no. We can only leave the cockpit for a physiological uh, need or if you're on a, a long-range airplane and you're going to take your rest break. And that's the only time we're really allowed to leave the cockpit. And we're not really supposed to interact at all with passengers during during the flight. So um, I, I kind of miss that. And I kind of miss the, you know, being able to come up to the cockpit and um, have a discussion with the pilots in, uh, during a flight. I must admit, um, from a from a nervous flyer's point of view, uh, I, that would be one thing that I, I I would love to be able to do is to actually have a look at the sharp end, if you like, whilst we're in the air, just to see what it is that you guys firsthand are, are, are you know up against, for want of a better word. It's um, yeah, it certainly helped me when I first started uh, flying as a passenger um, when I was. 17 or 18 i didn't enjoy the experience at all um but this was before 9 11 so um one of my friends said well, why don't you ask the captain if he could go up to the flight deck and, and i did that probably up to half a dozen times i would say um and on four of those occasions they let me stay for the landing as well really? um, and it, ma oh, nice. it made such a difference to the way i felt about flying and and actually seeing the the folks operate the aircraft and their interaction with the controls and atc and everything and it, it almost cured my fear of flying uh, just over a couple of months it's an incredible experience it's just it's just as well you spend nearly as much time in the cockpit as uh, or, or in an airplane as, as captain jeff i think to be fair maybe more <laughs> well i don't know, I don't know about that, but, um, it's, you uh, know one of the uh, that reminds me of a story uh, not a story but a, a situation that we had once back in the 90s again before we had this strict, you know, once that cockpit door is closed before we push back and it's going to stay closed and locked until we get to the gate and the engines are shut down and the after uh, or the shutdown checklist has been completed. Well, back in the days where we could open the door and uh, you know, leave it open while we were taxing out, we were going, I don't know where we were going, but it had a some kind of a weather situation somewhere and uh, we had a wheels up time you know a specified takeoff time so air traffic control put us between the runways uh, in atlanta and uh, got a chime from the flight attendant she says uh, hey there's this this lady back here who's really not happy about being on a tight uh, confined space kind of claustrophobia uh, going on and almost getting to the point where she is you know threatening to open up a door and, and jump out of the airplane because she can't stand it and knowing that we're going to have to be you know sitting on a taxiway for you know possibly a half an hour this is really starting to freak her out and uh i said well don't tell her to come up to the cockpit you know we have the door open and and uh you know we'll talk to her and 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 there are more windows up there including the eyebrow windows you know the 727 and and the, the mad dog i fly so you know you have a little bit more it doesn't feel quite as tight and confined for somebody being claustrophobic and and she came up there and we talked to her and you know it was a it was a good experience i think for her and she said that she really felt much more calm and at ease after talking with us and being up in that uh more spacious area and uh, having more windows and that kind of thing so um yeah it's also you said before about PAs, Jeff, um, and, and you've just described the situation now with the nervous passenger. It was such an easy win, wasn't it, as well? It was it was no hassle at all, uh, and it would have made her feel so much better afterwards. Mm. Yep. Agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, 
Yeah, it's a difficult one. Uh, uh, going back to sort of training here, Richard King has asked the question, uh, Jeff, uh, how do you feel about training aircraft being fitted with glass cockpits? Is it eroding skills when confronted with a limited panel? Uh, you know, I, I suspect that that may be the case. I, I think that there is a lot of value uh, in learning how to fly and, and uh, learning the fundamentals of flying by using, you know, round, what we call steam gauges or round yeah. gauges, uh, the more analog type instruments uh, where you have to develop a good um, uh, cross check uh, when you're doing instrument flying, et cetera. I don't know. You know, I, again, it's just it's a hunch that I have that, that would, that's a, a better way to learn and then, you know, transition to the more modern uh, cockpit displays that we have now, the uh, the Garmin, what is it, the G1000 and and beyond, and all the the new uh, technology displays where everything is presented in a very compact um, uh, way, so you really don't have to have much of a of a cross check uh, kind of uh, thing uh, developed and going on. Although, when that fancy display of yours happens to fail, and now you're back to looking at your standby instrumentation, which is not nicely arranged like that. I hope that you, you know, have experienced, you know, developing a cross-check and, and flying an airplane safely with that kind of instrumentation, because if you are not or have not had that experience, you may find yourself in a very bad situation. Yeah, it's... Um... I think, you know, uh, Falco says the glass cockpit gives you much more situational awareness. And I think it gives you, and I agree that uh, it, it, it gives you the opportunity for more situational awareness, mm -hmm. but I also feel uh, like that, you know, you can almost get to the point where you become complacent with the presentation, Falco, and that you stop, you stop thinking about, you know, building this, this spatial orientation in your brain and because you're relying on this instrumentation uh, exclusively and I think that that there's a tendency for that to happen but I agree with you in general that uh, the the new presentations the glass cockpits does give you uh, a better situational the opportunity for better situational awareness and it's just uh, up to us to make good use of it and not rely upon it too much Indeed. And in fact, actually, uh, Captain Jeff, uh, not Captain Jeff, you're Captain Jeff. What's the other one? Captain Al, that's the one. There's too many captains in the chat room. It's very confusing. Uh, for me, that's uh, a little bit like asking a coach driver whether they still need to know how to feed a horse. Standby instruments these days are very sophisticated. <laughs> well, of course, you know, I'm not in a uh, sophisticated airplane. The airplane that I fly now were made in the late 80s and through the 1990s. Mm. Uh, but in, in a a lot of people think that I'm still flying airplanes with uh, steam gauges and that kind of thing, and I'm not. Uh, my, the uh, airplane that I fly actually does have a glass cockpit, but it's not the nice, compact, um, new generation mm -hmm. kind of an arrangement as uh, most of the airplanes have now. It's not really that dissimilar from the, the, the presentation that Captain Al has in his uh, Airbus, by the way. Um, <laughs> we have ICASs and, uh, you know, flat panel displays and all that kind of stuff as well. So... I mean, it's not quite as fancy as what he's flying, but, uh, you know, still, standby instruments, um, I don't know. Uh, I think that uh, if somebody were having to rely completely on just standby instruments, I think that they'd, uh, they'd have their hands full. 
So <laughs> yeah, agreed. And I mean, presume I'm mean, again like all these things. I presume there are redundancies in place, obviously, for if any of these these systems fail, for example. I mean, you you must have points you can go back to if you like to still get the information you need if 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 a system should fail. Yes, and and you know what? It it is very rare that these uh, new displays uh, ever fail. I mean, I don't think I've maybe once or twice one of the screens has has gone blank and uh, uh, unserviceable uh, in flight, and we have you know backup procedures that we can display the information that was on, let's say, the navigation display. Now we can move it up to the uh, to the primary display and have a, a compact. Uh, display in front of us so you know the chance that you know both your navigation display and your primary flight display will you know go unserviceable is is very slim mm. to none yeah uh, and and then of course even if that happened on my side then the first officer's side may still have Should all still have yeah. you know his or her instrumentation so you know that kind of thing i think you know the loss of control incidents that we've had in recent history where, you know, they've been tragedies and killed, you know, hundreds of people. Mm. Wasn't because the instrumentation stopped working, uh, the displays stopped working. They, they worked fine. Uh, it was just uh, some aspect of the, uh, of the system, uh, the uh, airspeed system or whatever, you know, got to the point where it confused the computer system and the computer system basically said, uh, I don't know what to do with this. You have the airplane. Mm. And... That's when the trouble started because uh, in a couple high-profile incidents, you know, the, the, the pilot, the human, uh, gaining control of the airplane didn't seem to know exactly what to do with that right. and yeah. ended up exacerbating the situation and crashing the airplane. Perfectly good airplanes, I should add. Yeah. So. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. Is it the biggest cause. Oh, go on. Sorry. I was going to say just one quick question from uh, Neil Len, one of that might be a, a longer answer. Um, Jeff, do you see a future for commercial supersonic travel? I, sh I sure hope so. And it seems to be, you know, based on we the, the articles that we see in the news, uh, it certainly looks like there are several companies out there, including Airbus, uh, backing uh, one of the big efforts out there to uh, produce commercial airliners again uh, it, it seems like they're serious about this and they're throwing big money at it and uh, I would imagine I'm not sure it's going to happen as quickly as some are predicting but I think that within the next decade um, we'll probably start seeing that again I'm, and I'm not sure if they've completely worked out the economics of supersonic flight but uh, I hope they have and uh, I, I know that it will happen after I retire in about what five and a half years or whatever uh, but um, yeah I, th I think that uh, supersonic uh, travel is going to be a reality in the future again I mean, I, I remember, I mean, I, I say it every time we, we mentioned the word Concorde. I mean, I was just genuinely surprised that when Concorde came out of service, there wasn't already an alternative lined up, if you see what I mean, because it was, so, I mean, it's not like they were having trouble filling the aircraft with passengers. You know, it just always surprised me that, that an, uh, an alternative wasn't in place, you know, as soon as it came, as soon as the current Concorde, you know, there wasn't a Concorde 2 in the, in the sidelines waiting to get stuck in, you know. Mm-hmm. The economics of it are just massive, aren't they? It depends True. on the, the world situation, the oil yeah. crisis, uh, foot and mouth disease, all sorts of things uh, had effects <laughs> on passenger yeah. numbers. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it was, um, I think, trying to persuade the public to part with, you know, $12,000 uh, for mm -hmm. a, a return flight on Concorde uh, is uh, 
it's quite a big deal, really, isn't in it? In fact, I, uh, Captain Al's just said here, actually, do you think, Jeff, that um, that uh, the US will block overland supersonic flights this time round? You know, I, I'm i not sure. I think it has a lot to do with um, the new technology designed to limit the effect mm -hmm. of that, uh, that, that blanket, yeah. that uh, boom blanket, or I don't know if I'm using the proper terminology, but, you know, the reason why... It was banned over land in so many countries around the world is because this sonic boom, uh, at least back in the, what, uh, 70s, 80s, um, were, uh, was significant yeah. and, you know, caused real damage, broken windows and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, they've come up with some design, some technology that some, it doesn't eliminate the sonic boom, but it does kind of alleviate or, or uh, the impact, decrease yeah. the effect of it yeah. and uh, so if if it's if they're able to do that and it's uh, something that uh, the the general public can put up with yeah. I can I can see maybe lifting that uh, that ban overland yeah I mean, it's a that's just my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be more educated than anyone that I may have to add. To be fair, Jeff, it's uh, it's I mean, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, this this whole you know the super. But you know uh, how it, I mean, think about you know how long does it did it take or does it take now on an ocean liner to get from you know across the Atlantic Ocean? Uh, a couple days, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. and now we can take uh, a flight. We, you know, it seems like forever. You know, an, an eight to ten hour flight, uh, but still, you know, that's uh, definitely cutting the time considerably from, you know, an ocean liner. And how it, important really is it that we get to somewhere within a couple of hours instead of you know ten hours? I mean, I know you know time is money and all that kind of stuff, and people that think that they're very important, maybe more than others do, um, you know, it, it could be an, an important thing. And perhaps that might be something to think about. Maybe the, uh, the next wave of supersonic travel will be mostly private uh, supersonic travel for the people that really have the financial uh, resources to pay for that kind of travel. And, Perhaps their importance in operating their companies and that kind of thing is is you know worth the amount of money, the economics of it. But the general public, I think most of us, you know what, most of us need to slow down anyway. I think <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. You know, having an opportunity to be on a on a vessel for eight to ten hours uh, and and maybe enjoy a couple of movies, maybe sleep a little bit, yeah. maybe you know read a book. Maybe that's going to be. A, I mean, that's a good thing for us instead well, of. And of course, nowadays it's like I mean, sometimes actually being in the aircraft these days, you know, flying from one place to another is the only time, if you like, that we almost unplug from the hive. Do you know what I mean? Where we where we can just sit there and read a newspaper and not pick up our phones and you know sort of send messages backwards and forwards. I mean, maybe we really shouldn't you know lose that. <laughs> right. I mean, I personally, I've never felt that uh, the importance of uh, shaving off. You know, a flying flying time by more than half is is that important? But that's just me. You know, I'm I'm not a big important person, having to attend meetings in Europe and then be back in the United States for perhaps another important meeting, mm. that same day. You know, I, I so I'm I'm not sure I can really identify with that, uh, but maybe there are people out there that are think you know that that is very important. And uh, I think for most of us though, 
you know, supersonic travel is probably still going to be something that is going to be an uncommon occurrence. Maybe it's less of a, a thing now, to be honest with you. I mean, bearing in mind, I mean, this entire show is being done using technology that didn't exist uh, when Concord was built. I mean, maybe that need for having to have a face-to-face -face meeting with someone, given how good the technology is nowadays, maybe that's less of an issue. So it's actually, you're, you're less inclined to get on an aeroplane and go all the way over to go and just have a meeting to then be back that same afternoon. Exactly. I mean, I feel right now this hangout that we're having, um, yeah. I, I feel like I'm almost in the same room with you guys. Uh, you know, I, I feel very present with with you and even the people that are in the chat room. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. The technology it's, really has changed things, I think. So, so essentially, it's it's programs like this and people like Google and Skype that have ruined the desire for supersonic travel. There we are. <laughs> there you go. There we are. We can and blame think, it on that. Indeed, I think that's a perfect way to uh, start to wrap things up, I think. So, uh, Jeff, thank you so very much for joining us. It's been a real privilege to have just your good self with us this afternoon. It's been really lovely. To oh, it's been my pleasure. A lot of fun. Uh, uh, what have you got to, to look forward to? Have you got a busy week this week? I have a three-day trip, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, flying with uh, Brent, uh, the first officer that I enjoy flying with. We've flown together for quite some time, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And then on Thursday, I'm going to be flying as a passenger out to uh, <laughs> Los Angeles area, Orange County, going to be there for uh, some legal proceedings that um, uh, I'm uh, unfortunately having to take part in and uh, some coming back home sometime over the weekend, I guess, and then back out again the next week. So fantastic. Uh, busy week. What sort of week have you got? Never you having a, a, a what I'd like to refer to as a, as a chilled one? Yes, I hope so, because my poor car thinks that someone has shoved a drill up the speedo cable uh, <laughs> last week. And, um, yes, I'm going to be doing slightly less driving. Well, um, apart from the fact that you're... Friday, it's an important day, because we start the day with me and who I shall now refer to as the future Mrs. Nip. Well, indeed. Uh, yes. Going down to the registry office just to do some, you know, formalities before Ooh. the wedding in June. And then I should be driving across several continents to get to the... Uh, the Barnes that look, There's no need for that, is there? <laughs> it's least, really not East that bad. Um, <laughs> and, uh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I've got my passport with me as well. Good, so good. good. Absolutely, yes. And yes. So well, I'll be who knows? bringing with me uh, Mrs. Nev, so she yeah. will be seeing the uh, the full uh, fantasticness of the Barnes studio. Oh, I um, And I should be bringing my mixer over, which I'm donating uh, to it. Um, and I shall also be bringing the very nice gift that uh, Captain Jeff gave I know, us. I the, can't uh, wait to see. The big on-air light as well, Indeed. so that's going to take pride of place in the studio. Also. Certainly so is, absolutely. Be, uh, be a busy, uh, busy end of the week. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So nice and quiet right up till the end then. <laughs> there we yes. are. Has, I, Nev, has the future Mrs. Nev done a complete and thorough background check on you? Oh dear. Well, obviously there's the due diligence <laughs> procedure, um, and um, uh -oh. th th there's things that I'd rather not go into right now. Yeah, I understand. Uh, uh, for obvious reasons, for public decency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah. and yeah. legal ones as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe yeah. I, f- I should throw in a, a certain phrase that goes along the lines of a uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen, yes. family yes. show. But also, yeah. her, her track record is as bad as mine, so actually she can't really say too much about oh, it. Oh, now look, stop it. <laughs> Don't spoil a beautiful moment, uh, please. Family show, ladies and gentlemen, family show. Brilliant. I did that without moving my lips. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Well, it's, it's amazing what you can do these days. Well, uh, guys, look, it's been an awful lot of fun, but that is where we have to bring things to a close. As I say, thanks very much for joining us, Jeff. And uh, when can, uh, obviously, how do they get in touch with a legendary show that is APG? Well, if you want to send feedback to our show, well, first of all, uh, if you want to learn about the show and how you can listen and watch, you can uh, head over to airlinepilotguide.com. That's our website. And, of course, uh, most people download the podcast using iTunes, but there are several other podcast clients out there. And just do a search, Airline Pilot Guy. And if you want to send feedback, feedback at airlinepilotguide.com. But all that information is there on the website. And, of course, the best way to interact uh, with your show, of course, is via Twitter, isn't it? Through your, is it APG Crew, I think, is your handle, isn't it? Yeah, APG Crew, the the entire crew is on that uh, identification on Twitter. And... Information about how we you can follow us individually is there. If you go, I think it's pinned on the uh, APG crew uh, uh, thing on Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, airline pilot guy, all one word. Uh, again, all that information uh, you can find on the airlinepilotguy.com site. Indeed. And uh, to get in touch with our show, it is www.plaintalkinguk.com. It's facebook.com forward slash plaintalkinguk if you would like to go to our Facebook page. And our Twitter handle is at plaintalkinguk. We love to get our feedback as well. Uh, It is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. So, uh, Nev, it's time to say goodbye. It is. And thank you very much, Jeff, for a superb contribution, as always. I think, as always, when we listen to you, we all are slightly more better informed. We do. Than we do. Oh, it's absolutely. been great. I feel educated you. today. I'm being honest about that, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're very welcome. Indeed. Well, that's it, ladies and gents. Thank you very much, indeed, for joining us. Uh, Carlos it will be back uh, next week, and um, I will be, may well be doing the show, um, if not from the new studio, the, the bit next to the new studio. Yeah, right? indeed. But, My right? office, basically. Yes, indeed. But hopefully a couple of weeks' time we will be in the new studio, or at least that's the plan. So uh, looking forward to showing uh, you know, uh, looking forward to showing that off to everyone as soon as we've got it finished. But uh, that's it, guys. Uh, say goodbye, everyone. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. We missed you, Carlos.